Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. This is Madison Dix, one of your hosts of Science and Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures, affectionately known as SciPod, and co-hosted by the lovely Jared Adelman. Jared, tell them who you are. Hey, I'm I'm Jared Adelman. Uh, that's already said. I have uh, ten toes on each foot and a cat named Frank. There you go. That's some information about Jared. Uh, some other information you might need uh, is that we are a podcast that aims. <laughs> we are a podcast that aims to take the headache out of understanding and reading scientific literature. All of is those... that what you wanted me to say there? <laughs> No, I wanted I I I put you on the spot and boy did you deliver. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. Um we're friends, we're colleagues, and we're here for you, dear listeners. Um we have some pretty exciting news on the listener front. Um thank you so much to those of you who have downloaded. Um thank you especially to any of you who have rated or reviewed our itty bitty baby podcast just growing from a tiny seed. Is it a plant or an animal? We haven't decided. Um, <laughs> thank you. Because since our first episode, we have effectively doubled our number of listeners whoop, 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 from six to 11. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially we're, doubling. We're an itty bitty podcast right now, but that means that each and every one of you is incredibly important to us. So welcome, Bemdindo. Hello, listeners around the world. So happy to have you here. Today, we are going to be talking specifically about lessons from microbes, what we can learn about equity from unculturable bacteria. Why are we talking about this? Because Baronda L. Montgomery wrote it. Why are we talking about <laughs> Baronda L. Montgomery? Because she's amazing, and also because it's February, and that means it's Black History Month, which means this month and maybe for the foreseeable future, we will be featuring scientific literature by Black scientists or scientists of other minoritized communities. Uh, Yeah, we think it's really important to do that. Too many white folks in science. Too many white folks everywhere. It's like, yeah, it's entirely too much. It's obnoxious. And it's better when we have a lot of different ideas all coming together because that's how things actually move forward, you know? Yeah. More diversity equals more better. That's my philosophy. (laughs) More diversity, more better. I like it. Yes. So speaking of our theme this week, um, there is quite a bit of nonsense that we probably need to squash. Don't you agree, Jared? We sure do. And uh, that's a good point you bring up because it's now time for a little section that we call uh, three, two, one, squash and nonsense. Squash and nonsense. Squash and we'll get nailed it. (laughs) We'll get it right one of these. uh, We nailed it. We -hmm. did nail it. Um, (laughs) Yes. So here goes. Um, So since your article will be talking in part about inclusivity, I thought I would take this opportunity to talk about two modern movements in science uh, that seem to be conflicting a lot more than they should. So Mm. the first movement, yeah. So the first movement traces its roots back to the early 2010s and emerged in response to the so-called replication crisis. Have you heard about this? The replication crisis. Now, is this a crisis about whether or not certain papers can actually be replicated or certain experiments? That is exactly what it is. Okay. Um, so replicated and... meaning done again and get the same results. Exactly. That's 
really the whole point of getting a paper published is some other independent researcher should be able to take the methods that you published and do the same thing with it. Um, but as we'll find out, that doesn't always happen. Um, hmm. Essentially, scientists began to turn their attention to past research in their fields and found that a very significant amount of it could not be replicated with the same results. This is, of course, very problematic. As we've been talking about, one of the primary features of good science is that it must be repeatable. Mm -hmm. So there was a 2016 survey sent out uh, by Nature to around 1,500 researchers um, of multiple different fields and showed that 90% of them agreed that there is a replication crisis in science. Um, over 70% of those researchers had tried and failed themselves at replicating another researcher's work. And around 50% of them had tried and failed to repeat their own work at one point. Um, mm. Which is, it's not great. <laughs> um, but in response to this crisis, uh, research into the validity of past research has increased dramatically. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, good in some ways, not good in all, as we'll find out. But, all right, keep um, going. <laughs> yes. So the second movement is termed the open science movement. And serves oh. to, yeah. I'm so this one, this. <laughs> this one's all about what we're doing on this podcast here and our sponsor, SciHub, who has not agreed to sponsor us yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it's more in the terms of like researchers collaborating on data together, but a oh. big part of it is sort of making science more open in general. Well, I'm all about both of those things. Indeed. Um, where was, uh, yes. So the open science movement encourages the global broad scale sharing of data and scientific resources, which would help to standardize techniques and practices that work really well, and allow much broader access to them for easier research and cooperation. Among other things, the open science movement played a very large part in the rapid creation of the current COVID vaccines. Oh, yes. We love the creation of the COVID vaccines. We're all about that. Indeed. It would have took decades ago, years and years to make something like this. And actually they wouldn't even have a concept of an RNA vaccine back then. But um, yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Um, so basically but, allowing scientists to communicate more easily and share information more easily. Yes. Yes. Which this is sort of going against the entire culture of what science has really become over the centuries, which is a competitive madhouse. People don't want to. People don't want to collaborate. People just want to get their single name re recognition because that's what's kind of encouraged in today's scientific culture. Yeah, it's very turfy. Like you want to keep all of the other scientists away from the one animal you study, so that you can be the capital E expert on that animal. But listen, if there's only one expert, then there's no expert. I'm going to be real with you. Exactly. You need peer review. You need other people studying the same thing to make sure that this one person isn't just a nut job. Basically. You need diverse perspectives in every exactly. area of everything. Continue. Exactly, yes. Um, so in both of these movements, uh, greater instances of cooperation and inclusiveness would actually both create a lot of forward progress. They're essentially the only ways for the open science movement to move forward, uh, in their case, and for the reproducibility movements, these factors would reduce instances of shoddy rushed work being published. That shoddy work being published because of the need to beat their competitors. Yeah. Um, indeed. Um, cooperation and inclusiveness would, of course, also open up the scientific community to previously ignored ideas and practices from people that have been marginalized in the past. And ooh, buddy, but, do they need that. Indeed. But is this what's actually happening in those movements? What I do don't know, think? Jared, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, yes and no. 
So yeah. In but yeah, in a paper published in September of last year, um, a team of researchers analyzed thousands of published papers uh, that have been published in both movements so far. First, they looked at the degree of overlap between the open science and reproducibility movements. Um, how many researchers are actively publishing papers concerning both movements? Disappointingly, but perhaps predictably, very little overlap was found. Oh. Um, just kind of in general. Next, okay. they analyzed how well the two movements have integrated a culture of cooperation uh, and inclusiveness. The mm -hmm. integration was measured by the amount slash degree of collaborative networks between researchers, explicitly collaborative and inclusive language, and the degree of, of participation by women compared to men. Um, women was were a just sort of easy data point to, to use in this study. Um, I'm not quite sure... Okay, I wrote something on this overall, but the data between men and women was the easiest to gather. They encouraged other groups to look at other minorities because they predicted the same exact trends, basically. Mm. Okay. Um, so, Madison, out of the open science movement and the reproducibility movement, which one would you predict would be more inclusive? Well, I mean, it seems like it should be the open science movement. Am right. I wrong? Oh, right. Okay, right. cool. Yeah. So networks of collaboration in the open science movement were significantly more dense and robust than in the reproducibility movement. Collaborative, inclusive, and pro-social language appeared in 76% of the analyzed open science papers, compared to only 44% in the reproducibility papers. Um, the greater participation of women in the open science movement was multifold. Women publish more often in the open science movement and are significantly more likely to be listed as a lead author of open science papers compared to those concerning reproducibility. Re uh, the researchers predicted, again, that very similar trends would be found across marginalized groups in the scientific community. So the more diversity that's included in a group, the more chances there are for the co-mingling of different perspectives and really incredible ideas that could advance science forward. And while the roots of diversity and collaboration can already be found throughout the open science movement, it's becoming pretty clear that the reproducibility movement still has a lot to learn from the other group. And if they don't, they risk continuing this culture of individualism and bitter competition that has impeded science for centuries. They certainly do. Uh, if they're not being inclusive uh, in their efforts to reproduce and <laughs> to reproduce, well, you know, to replicate <laughs> yeah. these studies, um, then they're just going to perpetuate the same problem. Um, because if a study can only get the same results when it's a white scientist studying white subjects, for example, and then the results are completely different, if a brown person does it, then that's not good science. Exactly. You need multiple perspectives, like, like mm -hmm. we've been saying the whole time. It's just, yeah. it's, it's crucial. Or we're just going to pigeonhole ourselves into thinking about the imperialistic way to do everything which is not i mean it reminds, right it reminds me a lot of the issues that they're facing in the facial recognition software arena um where facial recognition software is only programmed to recognize white faces and it doesn't pick up on black faces because there weren't enough black researchers involved in the creation of the software and no one thought of it that's just a little sad don't you think it's extremely <laughs> like... sad and it's i mean it's kind of infuriating it is yeah. So, uh, reproducibility movement uh, basically do better, I guess. I mean, everyone do better, but yeah, you too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. especially them. Uh, yeah. But the other nonsense uh, that I would like to talk about, of course, concerns microbes. 
Oh, microbes. And, indeed. So, microbe um, nonsense. Microbe nonsense. There's, I find that there's a lot of it and not a lot of it at the same time, because most of the microbe nonsense focuses around one thing. Um, and that is that they're all out to get us. But that is simply not true. Um, there is, <laughs> to date, around 2,400 species of microbe that can be pathogenic or disease-causing uh, to humans. But that mm -hmm. is very, very, very times 10 to the ninth far from the total number thought to exist. Um, <laughs> so estimates of the number of microbes that currently inhabit our planet um, currently sit at somewhere between 2 billion and 1 trillion total species. 2,400 compared to 2 billion to a trillion is, you know, not at all a large amount. <laughs> yeah, so just just to put that in another way, 2,400, the amount of microbes that have been shown to harm us, uh, that has two zeros. Actually, well, no, three zeros, technically. Um, and then the number of microbes out there that we don't, that don't hurt us, or we don't know if they do or not, that has 1,000 zeros, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is of the microbes we know of, most of them don't hurt us. Indeed. Um but that doesn't change the fact that regardless and even in some scientific circles, microbes are demonized as a whole because of that tiny minority. <laughs> and not only can that viewpoint be harmful, but it completely disregards the fact that life on our scale would not even exist without microbes. Oh, yeah, that's so, true. I mean, we think of ourselves as one um, individual organism, but you should see all of the critters uh, in your organs working for you to digest your food. There's a lot yep. of them, and you never They're... thank them. <laughs> um, I read one figure on this. Their DNA uh, out outnumbers ours by about 150-fold. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Yeah, um, we are not one animal. In case you, in case you thought you were one thing, you're not one thing. Sorry to break your heart, listener number seven. <laughs> there is such such a good book uh, by this uh, doctor. I think he's a doctor, Ed Yong, called "I Contain Multitudes," and it opened my eyes to that stuff. It's so good. love the Walt Whitman reference. Hey, indeed. Yeah, I think he. Uh, I don't. I don't. I only know who Walt Whitman is because of that one mentions from Breaking Bad. But I do know he's a poet because of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know Walt Whitman from Breaking Bad? <laughs> I do, yes. That's the first time I heard about him. Jared Allman, ladies, gentlemen, and others. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, oh, a couple more things to drive my point home. Yeah, so absolutely. you know this, uh, working at an aquarium, but basically estimates range from about 50 to 80% of the oxygen that we breathe is not produced by trees, but by tiny marine plant-like phytoplankton in the ocean. Yes, that's very true. So um, just to recap that, once again, we breathe oxygen. It's in the air, makes us alive. Um, mm -hmm. most, most people credit trees with making that oxygen, and they do. They do really well. <laughs> However, 70% um, of our planet is covered in water, and that water is chock full of tiny little microbes that are green and photosynthesizing all over the place and making a lot more than half of the oxygen that we breathe. Um, probably around 70%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm saying up to 90%. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's also thought, uh, on that line of thought, that the activity of ancient microbial life is actually what made our atmosphere so tolerable in the first place. Oh, yeah. There was the evolution a whole... of photosynthesis. <laughs> yes. The boring billion is a great boring billion. history. <laughs> yeah. 
there was there also might have been a time where the Earth might have looked purple from space because there's a theory that the first organisms to photosynthesize used a purple molecule rather than a green chlorophyll. Was Prince there? <laughs> just Prince just and the Born Villain. Yeah, it's he did. A... He sure did. He was like, "Purple rain is over. It's me now." <laughs> yeah, uh, that is now mm-hmm. scientific canon. Um, circling back to the, uh, gut thing, uh, there is around two pounds of microbes inside the gut of the average human. And without them, we would quickly die of starvation, no matter how much food we actually consumed. Um, this yeah, so I, I'm mad that this isn't common knowledge yet, just because it's so fascinating, but, you know, stomach acid doesn't actually do that much besides harbor the microbes. It does break down food to an extent, but it is largely the work of those microbes, uh, your specific microbial community, that is adapted to eating the food that you usually eat. That's breaking down that food and letting you use those nutrients. You know, I have been giving my stomach acid too much credit. I'm sorry, microbes. I didn't know. I didn't know <laughs> it, that it was the ingredients in the soup that gave it the flavor. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so we would, one, we, we, we'd be dead about them. Um, there's even some emerging science to suggest that your personal microbial community's health may have a critical role to play in some mental illnesses and other disorders. Oh, that's extremely true. Most of our serotonin is produced in our gut, not in our brain. And by the way, serotonin is the molecule you need to be not sad all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, the molecule I really need to be not sad all the time. <laughs> <laughs> As one of the many adults in our country and around the world. Uh, who has a chemical imbalance in their brain causing emotional problems. Yeah, we're all neurodivergent here. Um, <laughs> one more fun fact. Um, don't even try thinking about living in a sterile home if you are going to be living in that home. Um, it does not matter if you're able to kill everything around you. The microbes living on you will simply take their place. And there is no better example of this than the International Space Station which is colonized nearly entirely by human-associated microbes because there's nothing else there. Whoa. Would you like like to guess what astronauts report the International Space Station smelling like? Oh, what does it smell like? Let's see, if it's all human microbes. We're talking dirty socks and smelly armpits. Oh, I was going to guess a burp. (laughs) (laughs) Burp is a good guess, too. I think I remember reading that. Okay. All right. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. we do. Yeah. I mean, I have heard that the smell of sweat, the smell of poop, it's not the actual stuff. It's the microbes and that are doing their work that give off the smell. Exactly it's right. Chem- it's the chemical yeah. reactions that they're enacting in order to change one form of matter to another form of matter, which is their job. Exactly. Also, fun fact, you will crap out the equivalent of your body weight in bacteria every year. I thought you were going to say every day, and I wasn't going to be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe for some people. But uh, the moral of me saying all this uh, last part is, you know, just don't make your house smell like a dirty sock. Stop trying to eliminate all the good microbes. Just keep your windows open once in a while. Let the good, let the benign microbes in so they can fill the space and let, and keep the bad ones out. Oh, I get it. So if you're constantly trying to sanitize everything in your house, then all of your smelly microbes from your body are going to crawl onto those surfaces and make your whole house smell like a dirty sock, right? Exactly. Exactly. My point. Um, Basically learn from the plight of those on the ISS because they can't open their windows because they're in space. (laughs) 
Poor things. Okay, yeah. I mean, open windows. Uh, I like to clean personally with like vinegar and baking soda a lot of the time. It's a lot less expensive and a lot less harsh and it doesn't yeah. make my cat sneeze. So that's always a good sign. Yeah. And less likely to create superbugs. Less likely to create superbugs. Also less likely to go into your drains and create super cyanobacteria in the river nearby. <laughs> <laughs> also a good point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you for squashing that nonsense. Always love to talk about microbes. Um, You're very welcome. Good stuff. Is there any other nonsense you'd like to squash? That is all I wrote down. So for now, yes. All right. Pretty cool. Were you hoping um, I would say something else there? No, I just wanted to make sure that you squashed it all before we continued. Otherwise, my nonsense was going to move in and cultivate the surface. <laughs> you know, my shoe is covered <laughs> in nonsense right now. Perfect. All right, then. Well, why don't we dive right in to Baronda L. Montgomery, my new personal hero. Sound good? Alrighty. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So um, first off, uh, as we said at the top of the episode, we are going to be featuring Black scientists this month and uh, diverse scientists moving forward. Um, but it was discouragingly difficult for me to find articles, papers by Black researchers, specifically using my normal research methods. I, you know, I went to PNAS, like I always do, um, but I couldn't find anything that way. Um, I tried a lot of different ways of filtering with no success before I finally uh, came across this blog post from crosstalk.cell.com. Uh, it's an article entitled 100 Inspiring Black Scientists in America. And it is Really we can also post that in the excellent. episode description too. We should. We should put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's a, see the show notes. We put it in the show notes because we're professional. Um, <laughs> it's a really great link. Um, and it was scrolling down that list and looking for researchers who were, you know, researching things that I thought would be interesting to talk about that I stumbled upon. Once again, my new personal hero, Baranda L. Montgomery. So let me talk about her a little bit. Let me gush. Um, so first of all, the thing that made me click on her name is that she works at Michigan State University, which oh, I'm from Michigan. From. Yeah, go green. Uh, I didn't go there, <laughs> but a lot of my friends did. You're um, from there. I'm from there. It's nearby. So that was like, oh, I don't know. I'll choose this one. Um, she is a professor in the departments of biochemistry and molecular biology and also microbiology and molecular genetics. She all is of, wait, all, all of those. <laughs> yes, all of those. Jesus Christ. All right. She has, she has multiple PhDs. Um, she is also a member of the- It sounds like four PhDs in total. That's ridiculous. I mean, I didn't count. That might be as that might That might be the number. Even <laughs> three would be cool. Veranda, <laughs> if you're listening, if she's listening, she's probably like, I have nine, please. Anyway, <laughs> um, she's also a member of the MSU Department of Energy Plant Research Laboratory, which is a really Ooh. cool initiative. Um, they're looking at plants and trying to solve uh, a crisis that is very near and dear to all of our survival, the climate crisis, um, the Department of Energy. So she has several papers out about looking at cyanobacteria and, you know, those marine green things that we were talking about that create so much oxygen and trap so much carbon dioxide. So she's someone who's looking into that. Going to help save the world for sure. Okay. I had a dumb question that you just answered. So never mind. Okay, great. Okay. It was, uh <laughs> <laughs> it was basically is cyanobacteria, the algae fuel that people have been talking about. But yes, it is. Yes. yes, it is. It is. Yeah. 
Um, so in 2020, which was last year, um, whew, thank God it's not this year anymore. Um, <laughs> anyway, last year she co-founded and co-organized um, the first Black Botanists Week for Ooh. botanists, people who study plants who are Black. Um, and that was a huge success and inspired the creation of another really cool organization called the Black Microbiologists Association. Um, if there are any Black microbiologists listening or anyone who wants to learn from the excellent people who are Black microbiologists, check out the hashtag Black in Micro. Um, you can also check out uh, Black in Micro on Twitter and Instagram or just Pop on over to blackinmicrobiology.org. There's a ton of support, resources, jobs for black microbiologists through that network. Yeah. Also, awesome just to stuff. plug microbiology for a second, um, mm -hmm. if you are trying to get into science, we know so little about microbes compared to what we could know. And it is there's a lot of money to be made while also exploring your passion, which is nice for anyone who wants to get into it. Pro tip, look at the little guys. Anyway, yeah. um, and uh, Montgomery does. Her research centers on dynamic molecular mechanisms, molecular as in referring to molecules, dynamic as in moving and changing, mechanisms as in doing stuff, um, that allow photosynthetic organisms, the plant types, from cyanobacteria to full-on plants, to adapt and respond to changes in their environment. So. Basically looking at how these tiny, simple organisms respond to change without eyes, ears, or what we call consciousness, which is quite a puzzle to is unravel. Is this sort of going to be talking about like in the broad scale of climate change or just in the short term? Um, this specific article is not really going to talk about climate change at all. Oh. Um, this one has to do with another element of Baranda's work. I shouldn't call her Baranda of Dr. Montgomery's work. We're not on a first name basis, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, of Dr. Montgomery's work um, because her scholarship extends beyond biology. And um, she also studies mentorship, faculty development, and is working to develop evidence-based strategies to foster equity and inclusion in academia. So that equity- is a really yeah really big deal because in the uh, survey that I was talking about, one of the main reasons that people cited for the lack of reproducibility was lack of mentorship. Yep. Yeah, we need really good, really good mentors. And specifically, in order to have a diverse base of scientists working on things like reproducibility, we need Black mentors so we can have more Black scientists. But we'll talk more about that um, moving forward. And we also need more Brown mentors and women mentors. and any individual who is minoritized, um, we need more of you. Yes, indeed. Yes, we do. And we need to support you, not just ask for you to come here. But I'll get to that later. Um, so yeah, she, she really sort of bridges the gap between her microbiology research and her big picture thinking about how to solve the world's biggest problems. Uh, actually, on, <laughs> right under her name on her website, BerandaMontgomery.com, by the way, um, she says, I'm living my purpose in multiple domains and cherishing every moment. Oh, that's cute. I like that. Yeah, I love it. It's it's cool. Um, in case you're wondering how to spell Baranda Montgomery so that you can go to BerandaMontgomery.com, that is B-E-R-O-N-D-A-M-O-N-T-G-O-M-E-R-Y dot C-O-M. Enjoy, friends. 
Um, and I know I haven't even talked about her article yet, but before I talk about the paper she wrote, I'd like to talk to you about a collection of papers she wrote called a book. <laughs> um, she wrote a book and it's actually going to be published by the Harvard University Press uh, in April. It's going to be released. I pre-ordered it. You can pre-order it um, at Harvard Wait. Press. What is it called? It's called Lessons from Plants. Lessons from, I just wrote that down. Lessons from Plants. Would you like me to read you um, the the teaser for Lessons from Plants? Yeah, hell yeah. All right. Prepare your ear holes, friends, for some delicious flowery text. Okay. Baranda, <laughs> sorry. Baranda L. Montgomery explores the vigorous, creative lives of organisms often treated as static and predictable. In fact, plants are masters of adaptation. They know what and who they are, and they use this knowledge to make a way in the world. Plants experience a kind of sensation that does not require eyes or ears. They distinguish kin, friend, and foe, and they are able to respond to ecological competition despite lacking the capacity of fight or flight. Plants are even capable of transformative behaviors that allow them to maximize their chances of survival in a dynamic and sometimes unfriendly environment. Lessons from Plants enters the, into the depth of botanic experience and shows how we might improve human society by better appreciating not just what plants give us, but also how they achieve their own purposes. What would it mean to learn from these organisms, to become more aware of our environments and to adapt to our own worlds by calling on perception and awareness? Montgomery's meditative study puts before us a question with the power to reframe the way we live. What would a plant do? So that's really cool for two reasons. One, I need it because I am actively trying to get over my own plant blindness. Um, and two, I'm reading a the exact same book about fungi right now. So I think I'll just jump from that to this. Oh my gosh, amazing. Uh, once yeah. we're done with the fungi book, we'll, we'll trade. And uh, once we're done, we'll both have roots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah, um, plants are often overlooked, especially the tiniest of plants, the microbes. Um, and that, my friends, is what her actual paper that we're talking about today is about. So I segue. Thank you. I felt good as I was saying it, but then I commented <laughs> on it. So here we are. Um, okay. So the paper is called Lessons from Microbes. What can we learn about equity from unculturable bacteria? Um, okay. I have no, I have no edits to this title. It's perfect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, what does unculturable mean? Um, so in the context of this article, unculturable means that the current laboratory culturing techniques, culturing as in growing, are unable to grow a given bacterium in the laboratory. So basically an unculturable bacteria is a bacteria that scientists don't yet know how to grow or keep alive in a lab. They only know that it exists in the wild. Which is um, the vast overwhelming majority. It is the vast, vast, vast overwhelming majority. Um, however... When unculturable bacteria are defined in the articles that she cites in this one, um, they all make a point to say unculturable does not mean can never be cultured, but rather signifies that we lack critical information on their biology. And this presents both challenges and opportunities. That's okay. I'm going to talk about mushrooms again real quick, because I just finished a chapter about truffles and the efforts of a lot of people to grow truffles in like laboratories and stuff first of all that doesn't really work because truffles need trees to latch onto. but there is this one truffle guy that 
is usually able to get like a 30% yield of the truffles that he actually produces. There was one year where we got 100% and has no idea how he was actually able to do it. Um, able Being able to learn a little bit more about the fungus that actually makes them would probably even his odds a little bit, but right now he's still sitting at 30%. That's fascinating. I mean, that's part of what makes studying microbes so exciting. You can jump from a 30% to a 100% yield and have, have no, no idea, idea why. how you did it. Yeah. So many unanswered questions to work on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Baronda makes it, I'm calling her by her first name again. I just want to be <laughs> friends with you. I just want to be friends with you, Dr. Montgomery. Okay. Anyway, um, she makes a point, um, to point this out, um, because that's a real positive mindset looking at this unculturable, not as something that should be avoided, but something that presents opportunities and challenges and is exciting. Um, and she points out that we could benefit a lot from applying that same openness and um, willingness to accept a challenge to a lot of other areas where we have not had success in the past, specifically in trying to make academia more equitable. Ah, we've come full circle. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So equity, to define it, um, is a bit different than equality. Just want to touch on that real quick. Um, equality is everything being the same. Everybody gets the same stuff, no matter what. Equity means everybody gets what they need. Everyone is supported so that they can achieve the same level of success. Yeah? Yeah. So basically that picture, I'm sure everyone's uh, seen of like the really tall person and a really short person, but the short person gets a bunch of books to stand up on the fence and see, but the tall person can already see over, so he doesn't get any books. Yeah, exactly. So in equality, the very short person and the very tall person would both have a medium stack of books and the tall person would be way too tall to see what's going on. And the short person would still not be able to see at all. Whereas yeah. in equity, the short person gets a tall stack of books, tall person gets a short stack of books and they can both see what they need to see. There you go. Better for everyone. Yes. Don't you love explaining pictures on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I did a pretty good job. <laughs> I think you did too. Um, yeah. So that's just one of the lessons that um, Dr. Montgomery proposes. I know I worked really hard. Um, proposes that we can learn from the biological organisms that we study. Um, and one of the other things that she points out time and time again in this article is the importance of the interplay between individuals and environments, which is something you already touched on with the truffles and the trees. Why couldn't the truffles grow in the lab, Jared? Uh, because truffles cannot grow without a complex relationship with the plant, uh, being exactly. as tall and big as a tree. Yeah, and it sort of um, goes into something we were talking about, I think, last week, about how when people think of an environment, they usually think of sort of the static things around you. Like my environment right now is my living room with the carpet and the couch. But environments are comprised of, in nature, both living and non-living things and are in a constant state of flux, a constant state of change. So they're always exchanging things, always interacting, always changing each other and growing and competing. Um, and it's important to recognize that about an environment. There is no individual without its environment. There is no environment without the individuals that make it up. Yeah. If you were yeah. trying to understand this in like a scientific paper, they would list them as like things like biotic factors, the living ones, and the abiotic factors being the environment. Exactly. 
So as humans, it's sort of our instinct to, when we want to understand something better, we sort of single it out and try to get it on its own. Like if you had a bunch of puzzle pieces all messed up together on a table, um, but you wanted to see the picture on one puzzle piece, you'd pick it up and put it you know, on a white surface so that you could see it more clearly. But the problem with doing that with living things in science is that you don't know the relationship between that puzzle piece and the other puzzle pieces. It might be that by removing that puzzle piece, the rest of the puzzle will die. <laughs> ah, I, I, <laughs> a little trashy, but I like the metaphor. Yeah, um, the metaphor does not hold up well when extended, but I feel like it paints a, a picture so you sort of understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so scientists like Dr. Montgomery who study these unculturable bacteria, they are more and more looking to replicate the environment and certain elements of the environment that are in the wild in order to have success at culturing these bacteria in the wild. So they're not looking at the bacteria and saying, everything in my laboratory is perfect. Why are you not living? They're looking at, <laughs> <laughs> they're looking at the environment and saying, okay, what parts of this do you need to survive in my laboratory? What do I need to change about my laboratory to support you, tiny organism. <laughs> yeah, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and as you mentioned, bacteria or microbes that can be grown in a laboratory are an extremely small fraction of the total diversity that exists out there in nature. Um, and microbiologists as a whole recognize that those unculturable bacteria play incredibly important roles that they just might not recognize yet because they haven't yet created the right conditions to study it. Basically, ah. don't ignore something just because you don't understand it or can't see why it's important. In nature, so, it exists, so it is important, whether or not you can see why. So could this not be solved in part by just bringing the science to the environment itself, like not necessarily recreating it in a lab, or is that just too messy? I wondered about that. It is not addressed in this article. And I'm guessing if we asked Dr. Montgomery, maybe she'd be like, that's a stupid question. Of course, we can't bring an entire <laughs> laboratory set into the middle of nature for this, this, and this reason. But I don't know what those reasons are, but I'm sure there are good reasons. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I have no idea what tools they use to study microbes, but I bet they're hard to do on site in the woods or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a fair point. Oh, without electricity and mm, all the stuff. Um, Although on the other side of things, like we have, we're getting so close to just having like a smartphone-like device where you can just put some DNA in it and you have the full genome of, a, of an animal. I just find it a little hard to believe that those other tools don't exist in other microbiology realms. I don't know. Well, they definitely do use those genetic tools in microbiology. Um, oh, yeah. She talks about it a lot. I don't know about a smartphone toaster oven for <laughs> genetics. I don't know about that, but you do. <laughs> we're getting close. It's the, we're, we're not there yet, but there's oh, like, okay. we're, we're getting there. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to feature now an image um, that y'all cannot see, but I will describe it. It is a table, a table <laughs> of information, not a physical table. Um, I was picturing a physical table. I'm sure everyone was. Might be. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is a table with two columns. 
And the first column is titled, What We Accept About Unculturable Bacteria. And the second column is False Assumptions About Minoritized Individuals. I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of parallels. Interesting guess. Okay, so what I'm going to do for this table is I am going to read something from the what we accept about unculturable bacteria side of the table. And I'm going to ask you to guess what the corresponding false assumption about minoritized individuals may be. Are you comfortable with this? Yeah, let's try it. <laughs> okay, we'll give it a go. All right, so what we accept about unculturable bacteria they are recognized as metabolically active, yet unable to grow in an environment due to our inability to know what critical factors are needed to cultivate and culture growth. Culture conditions. Oh, wait, that, that was the end of it. <laughs> Sorry. So, no, no problem. I would guess that the corresponding stereotype to a minority in science would be that because they don't share like the colonial imperialist way of thinking that they couldn't grasp a concept in science or something similar like that? Yeah, kind of. So the the false assumption she's paired this one with is individuals are in an environment that has all the needed factors to support success and are thus failure to thrive is attributed to an individual deficit. Oh, okay. Yeah. So basically to put that in um, speaking terms, um, we accept that unculturable bacteria the reason that they're not growing is because the lab conditions aren't right, because we don't know enough to make them right. Whereas with minoritized individuals, we assume that the environment we've created is perfect and it's their fault that they're not growing. Which is stupid. Which is stupid. It is not how the world works. It is not right. It is wrong, in fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's one thing that we can learn from uncultural bacteria is that in order to actually have everyone thrive, we need to support their success. And that means changing our environment to be more inclusive, not expecting these individuals to change themselves to fit the environment. Um, another one. All right, from the what we accept about uncultural bacteria side of the table, culture conditions limit or allow only permissive conditions for a limited subset of bacterial species of known diversity. I have no idea what the parallel would be here. <laughs> yeah, okay. So let me let me translate this one a little bit on its own first. So culture conditions, the lab, limit or allow only permissive conditions for a limited subset of bacterial species of known diversity. Basically, um, the environment we can create in a lab is limited by the amount of, by what we know about species of bacteria. So the limit is our knowledge. Um, we are limited in our knowledge. Whereas on the flip side of this um, is the false assumption that our cultures, human cultures, are meritocratic. Can you define meritocratic? Uh, one would have more merit than the other based on some weird standard we put on it. Meritocratic, yeah, is... Um, the idea that you earn what you get. See, I did the stupid Google thing where I use the word in the definition and that's, uh, that's my bad. No, that's okay. <laughs> so yeah, this false assumption that is that our cultures are meritocratic. In other words, we earn what we get. Um, 
and we are adequately capable of supporting minoritized individuals. And a lack of diversity is due to individuals from these backgrounds failing to succeed. Yeah. So in bacteria, we recognize that the reason we're not seeing more minoritized individuals um, in our cultures um, is because we don't know enough about them and we aren't supporting them and creating the right uh, environment for them to, them to thrive. Whereas in academia, we say um, we're very capable of supporting all of the minoritized individuals, even though we don't know who all of them are. And if they're not here, it's because they're failing. Once uh, again, wrong. <laughs> yeah, completely wrong. Yeah. Um, okay. So here is another thing we accept about unculturable bacteria. We lack abilities to support the growth of many bacteria referred to Stuart as the uncultured majority. This would probably be the mindset that there isn't the resources to incorporate inclusivity, uh, which is obviously bull****. <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, actually, it's kind of the opposite. So oh. institutions assume that they have the mentors and leaders within that possess the abilities to support the success of individual individuals from a diverse background and have the structures of accountability to do so. So basically, they assume, okay, so we have really good mentors, we have good teachers, we have a place where everyone succeeds. So all we need to do is get the minorities in here and bam, they'll succeed. Why is that wrong? Yeah. Um, because that's not what happens in reality. Exactly. Um, we do not have the right structure of accountability to account for, uh, for example, unconscious biases. <laughs> um, yeah, our systems of accountability are really based on things that are visible and measurable. And so much of racism is under the surface. If you've ever seen any of those pictures of, you know, the iceberg of racism and the big racist acts like slurs and hate groups and all of that are above the water and the top. And then underneath the water are these more subtle things like paternalism and um, assuming like white saviorism, assuming that we need to help these cultures be more like us, which is completely wrong. And it's not <laughs> like did. millions of people killed over the centuries, like literally. Oh, billions, yeah. Um, oh man, yeah. Okay, so moving forward, um, another thing we accept about unculturable bacteria is that we need to study uncultivatable bacteria to learn their language that communicates to us their requirements for successful culture. Wait, say that one more time. Okay, we need to study unculturable bacteria to learn their language, language in quotations, the language that communicates to us their requirements for successful culture. In other words, we need to study bacteria and learn the ways that they communicate the signs of what they need and basically learn their way of communicating in order to communicate successfully or grow successfully with them. That doesn't seem like a bad idea to me inherently. I don't know. No, that's a good idea. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is on the side of the table of things we accept about uncultivatable bacteria. No, um, but like compared to the other things that like we sort of attribute the failure of them to cultivate on them and not us. This kind of seems like we're taking the blame this time. And I think that's a better thing than the others. Ah, I don't so, know. all right. So this table has two sides. Um, 
The side that we're talking about, things we accept about unculturable bacteria, actually has all been uh, confirming that we need to change, that the bacteria doesn't. Oh. Um, yeah. So, like, I'm going to start from the beginning. The first one, um, um, bacteria are recognized as metabolically active yet unable to grow in an environment is due to our inability to know what critical factors are needed to cultivate and culture growth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was my mm-hmm. mishearing. My, yeah. That was my we lack the abilities to support the growth of many bacteria referred to, Stuart, as the unculturable minority. We need to study. To correctly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay because I mean, it is the other side of this table is hammered into us over and over and over again, especially those of us who try to make a career or study the sciences. Um, the sciences are a very paternal, paternalized um, field. <laughs> the word. Um, just steeped in white supremacy, unfortunately. Um, the foundations of science are amazing and science is really important. The process of science is incredibly important. But um, one of the things that's often misconstrued about science is that it's objective, when in fact, nothing is objective that is done by humans because we are incapable of being truly objective. We yeah, are... But- we are subjective by nature we only have two eyes if we're lucky (laughs) like so yeah i i keep thinking back to when i was first going into college and taking my first biology course and the professor said something that made me really mad when i first heard it which is that a theory a human theory a theory we have on something could never become a fact um and that made me really mad because like aren't we the ones that make the facts but the reason that that's the case is because we could always be more right or more wrong about something so yep. to say that it's a done case when we have no idea whether we're done exploring it is, it's just pride getting in the way of us. Heck yeah. Good professor. Yeah. That, w- that would also have greatly upset 18 year old me. <laughs> <laughs> Ew, many oh, it made me to... real mad. But yeah. four years later, I was like, oh, okay, Dr. Winslow. I get yeah. It. Oh my gosh. I mean, there were, I had such a hunger as a youth to know all of the things. Uh, and it took me a really long time to accept that. You can't um, because no one does and no one ever will because all of the things are always changing. Nothing is static. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a Chuck Palahniuk quote. Nothing is static from Fight Club, in fact. Okay. I love that book. Yeah, it's a really good book. Okay. But back to, oh, my dear, dear friend, Dr. Montgomery. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to go back and forth and I'm not going to make you play the game anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So back to this uh, on the correct side of the column, things that we understand and accept about bacteria. Uh, We need to study them to learn their language, to understand how they communicate to us, their requirements for successful culture. On the opposite side of the table, something that is wrong that we assume about humans in the sciences is that Individuals, humans, exhibiting deficits in growth, not growing, need to learn the, quote, institutional language of success, unquote, and learn to adapt to the established environment to demonstrate growth and pursue success. So basically, if you're not doing 100% at all times, then you can just kind of get out of the way. Yeah, and it's all, what we're trying to squash. it's all that bullshit that you hear in high school about, okay, what you have to do is make yourself into a brand, make yourself into a product that can be sold. It's all about productivity. Um, Never post anything personal on any of your social media accounts. Be 100% professional at all times. 
be a robot. Let us control you. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, I fought that by getting uh, noticeable tattoos on my forearms. So screw you, system. Yeah, I also got tattoos and then, you know, went and got a degree in theater. And I did a, I did a lot of things to be like, I'm not going to be your robot. And guess what? I'm not. So follow your hearts, kids. Anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, that's obviously a problem. Uh, that's a, a big barrier to our ability to cultivate diversity in the sciences is, once again, telling others how they should be instead of listening to their commentary about how we should be. Got to be listeners, not just talkers. Okay. Um, back <laughs> to back to the bacteria side of the table. We accept um, there is a general widespread curiosity about and encouragement to investigate the permissive conditions and unique culture conditions needed to support bacteria that previously had been unculturable. Um, so that's this idea that we were talking about where you said, go into microbiology. There's so much we don't know. There's so much to be done. It's so exciting. Widespread curiosity, encouragement, investigate. Um, whereas what we hear a lot when we talk about individuals who have not been successful, minoritized individuals, um, is that negative stereotypes about minoritized individuals are pervasive and individuals who are committed to service to their community should support marginalized and minoritized individuals in assimilating to the models of success through the white gaze. In other words, respectability politics. You know, you hear people saying, you hear people looking at someone like, let's just pick like Cardi B with WAP. And they look at her and they say, oh, this is reinforcing all of these negative stereotypes about black people. How dare she? parade herself around like that and, and, you know, do a disservice to her race. Oh, I can't believe I just said those words out loud. Guys, I do not believe that at all. I love her. <laughs> um, but that is an attitude that people express thinking that they're helping by telling minoritized individuals, Black people, women, gay people, that they should act more respectable so that others will see their race as more respectable. That's, Ugh, hearing it that way is just making me... D didn't no. you just vomit in your mouth like six times? It's all over Yeah, it's, it's really terrible and it's really pervasive. Um, it's bad. Never let anyone tell you that you have to represent your entire demographic. That's bull****. <laughs> me and Jared as white folks have never been expected to represent white people. Not and that is a... Once. It's a huge privilege. It's a huge bag of <laughs> that we don't have to deal with that every other person who's not white does. And it's a huge barrier and it's not fair. No, it's not. It's not. All right, back to the bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. The environment and origin of other organisms growing in the environment may be absolutely critical to supporting the growth of unculturable bacteria. Yeah. Whereas yeah. <laughs> in, um, when we bring it back to people, we have tokenism. Uh, individuals ah. brought in as the only black person, the token Asian, the first or only, um, the first black president, the first, I mean, we see it all the time. First and only is very, very common. Um, and that overshadows the true importance of cohort-based recruitment uh, and engagement, which is starting to be recognized, chiefly by Baranda, 
but it's yet to be broadly recognized as a critical goal or a critical. Can you explain factor. what that is real quick? The, the oh yeah, sure. Oh yeah, cohort-based recruitment. That does require explanation. So not just um, hiring one black person and checking that off on your DEI checklist, but hiring, bringing in a community all, all at once. So this is something that um, the sorry about that singing. My bad. This is <laughs> this is something that the black microbiologist association is all about. So not just taking one minority individual and putting them on your white team, but hiring a team of diverse individuals that already work together, already know each other, already support each other. Going into places where that exists and um, using that. Does that make more sense? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really important. And also, not just going into places like the Association of, um, I keep messing up the title of it, because I'm so afraid I'm going to say it wrong. <laughs> um, okay, so you're still thinking about not saying your first name, are you? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Black Microbiologist Association. So it's more than just looking. So for one, it's looking in those places for cohorts that are already established and working with them. But for two, it's also fostering the creation of more of those spaces, um, more spaces where Black folks, Black scientists can connect with others in their field. And I know I say, I'm say i saying Black a lot, and Black is very important, but also, of course, other minorities. No, minoritized individuals. Um, by the way, that is something I learned this week, that minorities is not really a great term, and minoritized really? individuals is much better. Yeah. Um, is it just because they might not necessarily see that they're a minority as part of their identity or? Well, essentially. Um, so like if you look up minority in the dictionary, actually, if you go to dictionary.com and type in minority, you get uh, a racial, ethnic, religious or social subdivision of a society that is subordinate to a dominant group in political, financial oh, or social power without regard to the size of these groups. Yeah, the word subordinate is in it. It's, it's right in <sighs> So to call someone a minority is rude um, because they are not a subordinate person. They have been minoritized. So yeah, the, the activeness of the word um, draws attention to the fact that these people are being pushed into the margins. It's not in their control. Um, they're not lesser just because they're a smaller number. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just a, just a, a term shift, a jargon shift, I think we should be aware of. Yeah. Um, that is like, really good to know because I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, that's the, we have no idea about a lot of things. Once again, me and Jared are white. Um, oh, do, do not get me mistaken. I am very stupid. Like, <laughs> in most respects. Yeah. I'm, I'm good at science, but I'm stupid in most things. So, like, yeah. just let me lay that on the table. Yeah. And we are extremely open to corrections, feedback. Uh, if we use words or phrases that are not okay, let us know, please, because we are here to learn. Um, we're both actively trying to learn on our own, trying not to, you know, put more pressure on people who have already been made to be teachers all the time when maybe they didn't want to be not going and, you know, asking our black friends all these questions. Um, but again, yeah, we're really receptive to feedback. We want to be better. We know we suck because yeah, we're man. white. 
Yeah. Yeah, man. Okay. Um, I lost my place. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, yeah. We were in the table. <laughs> the table. Uh, the table. Where'd it go? Where did the table go? It's got two columns. There she is. I found it. Um, okay. So, yeah. Cohort-based recruitment is where we were. Um, hire more than just one Black person. Um, if you already have a Black person in your institution or in your research group, I don't know the terminology, ask them if they have any Black or other minoritized um, friends from any of their other circles and hire them. Um, do that stuff. Okay, so um, the last thing on the table uh, is sometimes a bacterium must transform some aspect of the environment to make it possible for the organism to survive. This is huh. very true. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of respects. Uh, in a lot of respects. Uh, and not just bacterium. Obviously, it also goes all the way up to humans. Minoritized individuals in our current society are often penalized or punished for attempting to transform the environment rather than assimilating to the dominant culture. Is this okay? No, it is not. It is the most not okay. Um, <laughs> they actually are doing what they need to do to survive and grow and also help our culture survive and grow, which by the way, we won't if we don't dismantle white supremacy. Pretty we much. Won't. Our whole society is going, ooh, flush, if we don't dismantle this horrible obstacle, this giant wall of hideousness that is white supremacy. So that table is very telling. I mean, the article itself goes into much more detail about those, those different aspects, but as you can see, laid out very starkly. Um, there's a lot of things that the scientific community accepts about microbes that they don't accept about marginalized groups, about the very important black, brown, gay, woman, trans, non-binary, all of the minoritized individuals entering the sciences or trying to enter the sciences or being blocked from entering the sciences. There's a, all of these things that they accept and encourage about their microbes that they will not extend to their fellow human beings. And there's a lot we can learn from that. So buy Baranda's book, Lessons from Plants. Lessons from Plants. Lesson from Plants by Dr. Montgomery. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, that yeah. was a really, really cool article. Thank you. Again, I could I could talk more and more and more and more. I very much suggest reading the article. It's it's excellent and it's not too lengthy. Veranda knows how to write, and I'm very excited to read her book. <laughs> I'm excited to read after my fungus one. Heck yeah. All right. Well, that was a snappy one hour and two minutes. <laughs> this is like the shortest one we've done in weeks. Yeah, we did pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, unless I you had, talk... you still had more to say, and I was cutting you off because I did not. No, you're not. I sort of cut myself off. Um, I could, I could talk more, and then you can kind of decide if you want to plop it in or cut it out. She does have yeah. some great quotes. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about appreciating the importance of determining the essential properties of the environment of origin of a microbe, as well as the importance of co-culturing with other specific organisms. Um, so when we talk about learning the language with microbes, we're talking about genetic language and something that has been increasingly, become increasingly common is um, 
using environmental sampling and nucleic acid sequencing to determine which organisms are present in a particular environment or context. Because remember- Which, by the way, that is wild. Like, essentially, they're taking a blender and they're putting some dirt in it and they're blending everything up and they're counting all the DNA to figure out what's in it. Like, that is so goddamn cool. Yeah, what's really amazing to me about this is, okay, so- Microbes are really hard to study because we can't see them. They're teeny, 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 tiny, right? Um, And to solve that problem, I mean, originally they probably like took a microscope out there or whatever, but they found the best way to actually figure out what microbes are in an environment is look at the teeniest, tiniest parts of those microbes, which are the DNA. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like in order to make this picture bigger, they had to go smaller. Oh, I just think it's so interesting to me. I love contradictions. Um, Yeah. So um, the process requires the scientists uh, to take a lot of time to tease apart the, in quotations, language of a particular organism. That is all of the interacting DNA. Um, And that's critical to helping them understand the key factors that are important to its growth. And as she so eloquently puts it, to appreciating the sheer beauty of understanding an organism itself. She's like getting downright poetic in this paper. I like it. I know. I can't wait to read the book. Um, (laughs) So like microbiologists are fascinated with this process and have been for forever and continue to be. Um, And (laughs) there lies hidden unless, oh no, no, scratch that. I said half the quote. Okay, microbiologists can be fascinated with this process without end. Indeed, the richness of an organism's life and the potential achieved or lost therein lies hidden unless we understand its language. See why she's my hero? Yeah, that, yeah, I like that. Yeah, okay, so I'm just going to keep pulling pulling Dr. Montgomery quotes out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here's another cool thing. Um, Another thing that they do to understand the nuances of the environment or of the culture of these bacteria um, is by looking at the different viruses found in the community. Um, Because, uh uh-huh. So in microbes, viruses are able to successfully enter a bacterial cell and replicate and have long-term impacts on community function and bacterial evolution due to influencing information exchange and via natural selection for resistant microbes. Indeed. In fact, there is, at this point, it's estimated that there is a virus for every single other organism on this planet. Yeah. Like, Um, we have not looked at an organism and not found a specific virus to that organism yet. I think of viruses as zombie microbes. (laughs) Ah. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Because they're only, like, half alive. They're replicating, but they're not... They're just, you know, they're saying brains, but in the little protein spikes. Yeah. Oh, God, they're so creepy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I'm biased. They look really Uh, cool, though. Speaking to you from the coronavirus pandemic live. um, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so speaking of an environment that's always changing, that's true of the tiny elements of the environment as well. Like a bacterial environment can be completely changed in a matter of minutes by a virus. Yeah, mm-hmm. like they, their their world is just so ridiculously tiny that like a couple molecules can literally kill something. Yeah, like evolution, when we think about like vertebrates, like us, our evolution, we think of it on sort of a, a geologic time scale. Um, you know, like, what's a good example? 
Um, like wolves evolving into all the dogs, except that's mm. not real evolution. That's artificial selection. Bad example. Um, <laughs> we think of it like, let's see. Oh, I know. No, I don't. Do you have an example? <laughs> well, I, not, not necessarily to exactly your point, but it does make me think about the fact that about seven to nine percent of our own genome is viruses that just found their way in and stayed there. In fact, the virus, well, the whole reason that humans are able to form a, a placenta is because of a retrovirus, a virus that was able to insert itself on our DNA and get replicated. And what it does is it basically seals cells and melds them together to form that placenta. They're, they're called syncotins. And there's a syncotin for every lineage of mammals. So it happened all of those different times in different lineages. There's a primate one. There's a, there's a, there's a, I think there's a pig one. There's a lot. I just learned a whole bunch of new information that I wasn't looking for, but I'm so glad I found. The Tangled Tree, David <laughs> Quammen. That is one of the best books I've ever read. It's so The good. Tangled Tree, David Quammen. Noted. Um, cool. I was looking for like a, a snappy example of how a certain recognizable organism evolved over time, but you gave me so much more. <laughs> that's my entire, that's actually my entire paper for next week. So I'm glad I didn't uh, let it slip. Oh, okay. I'm really interested to learn about that because like reading this paper by Dr. Montgomery is sort of the first time I realized how viruses can actually change DNA, um, which is apparently their whole thing, but I didn't know that. <laughs> it's insane, man. I love it. Yeah. Um, it so yeah, viruses can change DNA faster than um, the traditional natural selection method of evolution can. I'll put it that way. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. That also made me think um, of an example that has nothing to do with this. So I think mm -hmm. I'll just, I think I'll just leave it. Well, okay. So there was a very, very heavy rabbit incident in Australia. And I think this was like the sixties and seventies, um, an invasive species of rabbit that was doing a lot of damage. So what they decided to try and uh, do was introduce a lethal virus that they knew was lethal to rabbits. Uh, and they thought that it would kill all the rabbits. But what the virus did was it leveled out in lethality. It became basically halfway between lethal and, and not so lethal. And now there's just all these rabbits in Australia that have a sublethal form of the virus inside their body that was supposed to kill them. Oh, uh, well, that I thought it was going to be so much worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's good that it wasn't worse than that. It went, it went the direction of not killing the rabbits, not killing all of Australia. And for that, I am glad. Yeah, yeah. See, it's a good thing. It's it's not the worst thing. I'll give it that. <laughs> um, all right. So there's a section of this paper called What Specific Equity Lessons Can We Learn from Our Fascination with Unculturable Bacteria? You ready to learn some lessons? Ready. All right. As a microbiologist's quest for cultivatable. Actually, I keep saying cultivatable. She says cultivable. Cultivable. I don't. Cultivable. Cultivable. Um, I like culturable. I think culturable is a better one. Yeah, I'm going to say culturable, even though she says this other word that I am not worthy to pronounce. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. As microbiologists quest for culturable bacteria relates to marginalized and minoritized colleagues, we often see only challenges rather than opportunities. We also frequently fail to bring our creativity, cleverness, or innovation to attempts to shift the needle in regard to supporting scientists from diverse backgrounds. If we genuinely want to support success more broadly, 
We must be positively curious about and commit to learning the languages and providing the needs of all, including marginalized and the minoritized in our midst. Furthermore, we must draw on additional lessons from these fascinating organisms to rapidly and irreversibly move away from deficit framing. Deficit framing being basically a negative filter. This, oh, so much work to do. This is a challenge. This is a barrier. This is an obstacle. Um, white people looking at the things that they have to do to diversify their fields. Um, it's not. It's not a big obstacle. A it's big, really not. It's, it's a huge opportunity and one that we've left on the back burner for hundreds of years too long. Um, in fact, one that we've, we've done a lot of bad things and it's really time to do better things. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. It is generally recognized that faced with an unfamiliar environment devoid of essential factor factors, bacteria may, as a survival strategy, enter into a temporary state of low metabolic activity accompanied by inability to proliferate, which may be mistaken for a constitutional resistance to culture. This may well explain the pervasive mislabeling of some minoritized and marginalized individuals as misfits or resistant to acculturation, rather than appropriately judging whether the environments themselves chronically lack essential factors to broadly support individuals from diverse backgrounds. Um, so once again, she's saying things that I said earlier, but much more eloquently. Um, yeah, if these growth-centered perspectives and actions are to reverberate throughout institutions, we will need to select and reward leaders who are committed to and rewarded for promoting individual success in its most extensive definition, rather than serving as gatekeepers who can determine who gets to grow in the selective media conditions currently pervasive in academic institutions. Go up, Miranda. Love you. <laughs> Absolutely. I also have an example <laughs> that actually fits this time. Awesome. Um, so in that paper uh, I was talking about earlier with the inclusiveness and the other movement in science, one of the papers they cited was um, interviewing a lot of Native American uh, science students who were trying to get into the field and sort of like their thoughts on the whole process and how it made them feel. And mm -hmm. by and large, not good. Um, yeah. just because science tends to invalidate a lot of the thought processes that go into the beliefs that a lot of Native American peoples have, but also the fact that like, a lot of the stuff that scientists claim to have found out, they've already been saying about their own landscapes and their own habitats for literally thousands of years at this point. Like, scientists are going in and giving their official species names to all these animals that Native Americans have known for much, much longer. Yeah, um, saying and that's they just discovered. Not really... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. And it's just not mm -hmm. really, it's not, it's not fair. So people feel about it. Yeah, it's that whole talking instead of listening thing that white people are so good at and really need to shut up. Yes. <laughs> and make more Was that you telling me to shut up right now? Oh, no, not at all. No. <laughs> get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. <laughs> it's just us here. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, more to your point, Baranda would say, in any sphere of life, our environments can be improved by our use of steward ba stewardship based transduction. <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. Very, very eloquent. So eloquent. Um, yeah, I also think it's really interesting, you know, if you've read 1942, I mean, 1943 or 1941. No, none of those. None of those. All the wrong numbers. 
Scratch it all. Okay, so if you've read, <laughs> sorry, 1491 or- Do you mean 1984? No, I mean 1491 or 1493 are two books about what the Americas looked like before Columbus's voyage and after Columbus's voyage. Oh. Yeah, they're really good. So, oh. you know, in, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and then <laughs> everything up for everybody and we all hate him forever after. <laughs> um, also, oof, um, as I've gotten more passionate, uh, my commitment to swearing less on this podcast has, ooh, done a nosedive. Sorry, kids. I figured uh, out how to bleep, so we're actually going to have Sweet! Awesome. I'll let him fly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so th- those are two books that include a lot of citations to scientific literature that have shown that the Americas were cultivated by the original peoples who lived here. The land was actively managed by Native Americans. Um, and the wild and untouched country that was all in quotations discovered by white people um, was in fact a very carefully managed garden um, in a manner of speaking. And what I find really interesting about that is the people who lived here definitely knew that because they did it. And yeah. yeah, and it took, you know, hundreds of years for white people to be like, hey, I found out that this thing happened. Like, Jesus. Not listen. We did it. Listen. Well, if you just would have listened back then, you wouldn't have had to rediscover all of it now. God damn. Yeah. Sorry for all of the profanity. <laughs> um, but that relearning kind of reminds me a lot of the um, the replication crisis that you were talking about. It's going back and looking at the things that were nonsense and squashing it for, for the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, our trend is, it's pervasive. Okay. We it's started pervasive. Started. I mean, we didn't start it. We're brand no, new. No, we started it. Okay. It was us. Yeah. Oh, did we, did we discover it, Jared? We did. We just wait. No. Oh no. That's bad. Um, ha ha. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Fine. Never mind. <laughs> um, Scratch yeah. all that. Um, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I want to close with the last paragraph of Dr. Montgomery's article. May I? Yeah. All right. So. All right, where to start it? All right. In scientific and academic contexts, we can endeavor to increase our awareness about positives, negatives, or gaps present in an environment. We can guide individuals to better perceive whether the critical factors they need for support and growth are present and available. We must have a real commitment and accountability for assisting them when these critical factors are absent. That's key. We must also intentionally promote appreciation of the diverse functions that each member of our academic community provides. Also key, such efforts will require environmental stewards, mentors, and leaders who can appropriately help individuals build and cultivate developmental support networks. That's that cohort recruitment that position them to achieve successful outcomes, as well as those who recognize and reward unique contributions. Approaches that would enable us to ask questions, listening, about how individuals, especially mentors and leaders, demonstrate stewardship in science environments 
rather than solely focusing on whether the individuals whom they are supporting are able to fit in, in the presumed infallible environments, are critical. Lessons that we can learn from organismal assessment and microbiologist successes with cultivating the previously uncultivatable, whatever, can yield new growth-centered modes of engagement with our peers, mentors, or leaders. These stewardship-based efforts may finally lead to the transformation in equitable practice that we claim to seek, and more importantly, that we desperately need. So Drop while the mic. we... <laughs> So while we did not get to cannibalism in this episode, we still have come full circle, so it counts. Um, eat the rich. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> right in the nick of time. Woo! Slid it in right at the last minute. All right. Well, this has been this has been a fun a fun episode to record. I learned so much researching. I discovered a new idol and a whole new list of new future idols who I'm sure I will fall in love with just as much as I fell in love with Dr. Montgomery. Um, and I'm really excited for it. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. All right. Um, what, are we, what, are, what are we doing next week? Next week uh, is on a top. <laughs> so I didn't specifically <laughs> uh, pick this because you hate birds, but it is entirely <sighs> history of birds. Um, so get ready for that. <laughs> All right. Next week. Next week, friends, we challenge my unconscious biases against our avian uh, relatives. <laughs> 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 Sounds like fun. Uh, and Alrighty. maybe if you're lucky, I'll tell you about the time I was attacked by a blue jay. Stay tuned! Ooh, that can be our nonsense question. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. All right. All right, guys. Still next uh, time, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Check out Science and Pictures magazine and scienceandpictures.com. Yes. Com. Yep. .com. Scienceandpictures.com. <laughs> they are the ones yeah. who support us. They are the ones In who make the pictures that go along with our words. Indeed. Um, except for the picture of my bearded dragon that graces this. That was me. But that everyone, was everything, else. <laughs> everything else. Everything <laughs> well, else. Partly yeah. Humphrey, because he yeah. was the willing, willing, willing model. But um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And maybe in the future, you'll see Jared's entire menagerie. Menagerie meaning the animals he keeps. Yes. Because there yes. are... A lot of slimies in there. Uh, but yeah, I will keep that cryptic uh, for now. Signing off. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. <week>. Mwah. <laughs>